In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I just did that backwards, didn't I? Anyone catch that? (laughs) It's the season of Epiphany, a time where we continue to find the revelation of God. And what better way to look into the revelation of God, but where he has promised and how he has promised to reveal himself to us. You see, throughout history, God has revealed himself to us in many ways. In the Old Testament, we find things like the burning bush as God comes to Moses and manifests himself. We find him as the fourth guy in the furnace with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And of course, that guy, Jacob, who had a cage match with God one night, all night long. And of course, Jacob hobbled away from that with a dislocated hip. But we go through the Old Testament, we find all of these different appearances of God, and we understand this as pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who is the second person who reveals himself to us. We theological geeks call these Christophanies. You can put that in your notebook, there will be a test. Then in the fullness of time, God's son came to us and took on the flesh of man. He became one of us and his name is Jesus. He revealed himself to be the true son of God, the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He revealed his will for you in his perfect life that was lived in your place because your life of sin demands an atonement. It demands a substitution that someone might live that life on your behalf. Then he revealed himself in his atoning death, where he exchanged his death for your life. In his resurrection and ascension, he revealed himself to be the Lord of eternal life, the true Son of God that death could not hold, the one who defeats death in the grave for sinners also. But what about now? He has entered heaven, and yet, how does he reveal himself to us? Well, we remember in the Great Commission when he tells the disciples to go and make, or the apostles to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. He reveals himself to us through his word, the Bible which is a book that you could spend many lifetimes studying and never plumb the depths of it. I like to talk about one of my professors at seminary who was given the book of Obadiah to write a commentary on a very small book in the Old Testament. And he was lamenting in class one day that he was up to page 1200 on his commentary and those evil people at Concordia Publishing House were telling him it's time to wrap it up now. You could spend a lifetime On a little book like Obadiah, you could spend many lifetimes on the whole Bible and still barely scratch the surface. Jesus doesn't just leave it there as he gave us his word that the church has seen that it is. But he promised to be with us through his word and his sacraments. The word attached to physical elements And so he reveals himself to us here in church in ways that we can see, that we can touch, that we can smell, that we can taste. 
He engages our senses because we are physical beings and we cannot know the spiritual God apart from physical means, apart from his word given to us. And so he attaches his word to elements as he has promised. These are sacraments from the Latin word sacramentum, from the Greek word mysterion, which sounds a lot like mystery because that's what it is. These are mysteries of God. How can it be that he has done these things for us? And how can it be that he is here for us in the waters of baptism and in the bread and the wine for the forgiveness of our sins in his body and blood? We can't understand all these things. You see, when we go beyond God's word and we say too much, then we run into trouble. In the same way, when we don't say enough and we doubt God's word and we don't take it for what it says, we say too little. And so we fall into doubt and unbelief. This is why we're given an admonition in our epistle text. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. When we add to or subtract from the word of God, we run into trouble. What is it to eat and drink unworthily? Certainly, as we see in the epistle text, that abusing one another in the church and abusing people in general, especially when it comes to the Lord's Supper, is eating and drinking in an unworthy way. We see what was going on. The wealthier ones were coming early. They ate and drank everything. They got drunk and stupid. And of course, the working class came later and there was nothing left for them. Paul warns us about this. He says, don't you have homes? Isn't that what you do at home? This is the Lord's house. We don't treat the Lord's house in such a common way, nor do we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ in such a common way. So those who disrespect one another disrespect the body and blood of Christ. Those who disrespect the body and blood of Christ disrespect one another. So we know that those who say too little or too much about the Lord's word and about his supper are those who run afoul of these things, and also those who make it about me and Jesus run afoul of these things. The Lord's Supper is not about me and Jesus. It's about me and Jesus and you and Jesus and us and Jesus together. To eat and drink in an unworthy way is to blaspheme against God as we sin against one another. But who eats and drinks in a worthy way, then, we are given to ask? Those who confess that they have sinned against God and thought, word, and deed by what they have done, what they have left undone. You see, we don't treat God like we even care about him because we're so busy serving ourselves. 
those who confess that they are not worthy because of their lack of good works. They are those who hunger for the righteousness of God. Those who know that they're not worthy of this body and blood of Christ, they are found to be most worthy because they come to eat that which they know they need so desperately. Those who need Christ's mercy. Those are those who come as empty-handed beggars to the table of the Lord and receive generously from his hand what he has promised to give them. Contrarily, those who would approach the Lord's table cavalierly, and those aren't just basketball players, with an attitude of entitlement. I'm an American. This church is in America. I claim to be a Christian. Therefore, I have a right to come and partake of this, whatever it is, probably just bread and wine. These are those who eat and drink judgment on themselves, Paul warns us. This is why the church has always practiced communion fellowship. All churches have practiced communion fellowship, at least until recent years, because we don't want to stand by quietly when people are at risk of being harmed and harming themselves. What is required to come to the Lord's table? Confessing that we are sinners in need of a Savior in Jesus Christ is certainly a good start. Being part of the body of Christ is definitely necessary. One is made part of the body of Christ through holy baptism. The Great Commission tells us that those baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fellow disciples and children of God. Of course, we're also told to not be divided amongst ourselves. Not to be divided is many-faceted. Of course, some of the divine services, we're told that at this point, we share the peace. And that means we turn around to our brothers and sisters in Christ and we say, peace of Christ or peace be with you. That's saying there's nothing between us any longer. We've put it away. And we're at peace with Christ because we are at peace with each other and vice versa. There is no longer division among us. I don't hate you. Peace be with you. That sharing of the peace is not a time to say, how are the wife and kids? Are you going to the lake this weekend? It is a time to say, we are forgiven together and we forgive each other. So being part of the body of Christ is to confess that we are all equally sinful and equally redeemed in Christ and I have no right to hold anything over you. But not being divided is also a common confession of faith. St. Paul warns about these divisions among us. He also says it's good that there are divisions among you so that the truth might be made known. Iron sharpens iron. And so sometimes it's good to have discourse in the church that we might argue things out. In our day and age, it's terrible that if I disagree with you, it's perceived that I hate you. One of my best friends in seminary, I never agreed anything with him, hardly ever, but I agreed that I loved him and he loved me and we give each other the shirt off our backs. Christian unity says we might not agree on everything, but we are one in Christ. And when we come to the Lord's table, we agree what it is, the body and blood of Christ given and shed for us for the forgiveness of sins, because that's what the Bible says. He doesn't, God doesn't tell us how. 
He just simply says that it is. But the Lord's Supper is not about threats and warnings. It's not about eating and drinking judgment on yourself. You see, if we left it there, then none of us would ever come to the Lord's table because it only hurts us. But instead, it's about grace, partaking of the very cup of God, being part of the feast that has no end. When you come to the table of the Lord, you are admitted to the feast of the Lamb in his kingdom that has no end. Here at the Lord's table, we are united with the church on earth and the church of all ages. It's comforting for many of us to know that those who have gone to the feast of the Lamb ahead of us, people like my father, when I come to the Lord's table, I realize I'm not just communing with you and I'm not just communing with Christ. I'm communing together with you, with Christ. And there are those that I love who have gone before us. We are united. We are together. But we don't need to focus on that too much, lest we fall into ancestor worship, and we better be careful with that too. It's about Jesus and us being part of his family. It's also here for the forgiveness of our sins. For we have many sins and we need God's grace constantly. A participation in the blood of Christ. Eating and drinking his body for the forgiveness of our sins. Our Savior comes to us in his holy supper with mercy and forgiveness because we are in such need. Even as we prove time and time again that we're enemies of God with our self-serving idolatry. Even as we don't show forth the righteousness of God, even as we reject those that God has placed in authority over us, even as we are thieves of other people's reputations, by not assuming the best of our neighbor at all times. In the midst of all of this, God doesn't declare you an enemy, but instead he prepares a table in your presence. He doesn't declare you to be an enemy, but he declares you to be his beloved whom he willingly gave up his life for so that you might be his for eternity. Christ Jesus claimed you and yet you keep sinning. This is why you need the holy meal of our Lord. You don't just need it occasionally. You need it daily. Even more if it could be offered. St. Ambrose of Milan, my so-called patron saint, I don't really pray to him or anything, but I like him because he's an Italian boy who worked in politics and became a pastor. So I got a lot in common with him. He said, because I sin always, I ought always to take this medicine. The medicine of immortality, the bread of life. Jesus is that bread of life, a daily food which gives us strength to go on day by day. He's not the beef wellington of the church. You have that a few times in a lifetime, but he is the bread of life. He cures our hunger. He gives us strength to go on, to live in his righteousness more and more every day. May his righteousness be your desire. May you hunger and thirst for his righteousness that he gives you so freely by grace in his holy supper. He calls you to taste and see that the Lord is good. God is truly present in his supper. 
And he calls you to confess your need and to grow in your appetite for his grace. On the night that your Savior was betrayed, he made a provision for you in his last will and testament. He leaves you his very body and blood and the forgiveness of sins. He gave up his life in your stead, and he took it up again with the promise of your resurrection. He ascended into heaven, but first he promised to be with you always. He didn't go away and leave you alone, but he promised to be where his word and his sacraments are found. And so the church gathers, and we rejoice in the grace of God for sinners. So I say to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. May the peace which passes all understanding keep and guard your hearts and minds to life everlasting through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.